Welcome to Editorially Speaking, the magazine podcast for the North American Hardware and Paint Association. I'm Melanie Mao, the managing editor for the association. And on today's episode, we have Chuck Daly, who is a master beekeeper and uh, a member of the Beekeepers of Indiana. And I'm sure there are a lot of other details regarding all of that. So in the issue of hardware retailing um, that retailers can read uh, starting February 1st, uh, we did a little deep dive on how to get started with a beekeeping niche in the store. And so I talked to Chuck a little bit about what it looks like from the beekeeper's perspective. So thanks for coming on to chat about beekeeping, Chuck. No problem. Thank you very much, Melanie, for having me. So um, I, I put a lot of information out there just now that people may not be familiar with. They may not even know that there are beekeeper organizations. Um, so tell us a little bit about the organization you work with and how you got started in beekeeping. Well, uh, the, it is the Beekeepers of Indiana. It is the, the recognized uh, official state organization for all, all Indiana beekeepers. And it provides support for uh, <clears throat> 30 independent local clubs around the state. Uh, the organization provides information and supports all levels of beekeeping. So if you're a beginner just starting out or you're a professional commercial beekeeper uh, doing pollination services for for growers and, and other folks, uh, they, it is, uh, it's a very good source and resource. Uh, the board, it's, uh, it's, it is a, an actual organization. So it has a board structure, which, you know, it has the typical officer positions. And then it has also 12 elected regional and what we consider at large directors who support the local clubs, the 30 clubs, uh, by, by, uh, region. Uh, most regions are broken up into, uh, 14 counties and, uh, the, your director's responsibility is to call on those clubs throughout the year to make sure they have what they need and, and to provide any support, whether it's educational or, or other support they need. Um, the education committee, which is one of the organization's many committees, uh, has the mission to educate the people of Indiana about the honeybee, local honey, the beekeeper, and provide educational resources for those interested in becoming beekeeping. Uh, and, and beekeepers, sorry. Uh, as chairman of that committee, uh, I receive all the speaker requests, which are distributed to eight members, eight committee members, based on location, availability, and sometimes the topic. If, it, if one uh, one committee member has uh, specific knowledge of a of a certain topic, uh, last year was really tough, of course, with COVID. Uh, we started out pretty strong in the year uh, with a bee school and some things, but. But by February, I gave my last presentation. And in fact, the club I went to a uh, meeting I went to on Wednesday night, that would have been their first meeting in a year. So it was beekeepers are obviously frustrated as everyone else trying to, to get together and talk about things. But in 2019, uh, our committee recorded a total of 35 non-club presentations. And what I mean by that is presentations that are outside of the beekeeping area. Okay. Uh, the Kiwanis. Lions, uh, ladies auxiliaries, things like that. Uh, but we gave 35 non-club presentations to more than 3,300 individuals. So, so that's that's the um, that's the state organization that uh, that we're a part of. So that's just uh, Indiana. That's, so that's just Indiana. That's right. You can so we can kind of uh, ex expand that out and consider that other state organizations. Do you know if there's an organization in every state? Uh, there is. A, the national organization is the uh, uh, ABF, American Beekeeping Federation. And in fact, they just, uh, the first week of January, they held their national conference, which for the first time ever, obviously, it was virtual. Uh, uh, it While that was frustrating for most beekeepers because they wanted to go, uh, it, it gave uh, 
more beekeepers, I think, access to the information because it was since it was virtual, yeah. you could get online and do it. So from that standpoint, I think it was good. It allowed me to attend because I don't don't normally get to attend uh, with my work schedule. But yes, there are uh, there are state organizations in every state, and most uh, most are supported by local universities as far as the entomology departments and things like that. So so it's uh, it's mm-hmm. it's been a growing. Um, a growing organization overall for, for the last, probably last 20, 25 years. So I guess you kind of started as a, as a hobbyist beekeeper before yes. you got really involved in the organization. So tell us a little bit of that backstory. Okay. Uh, the, uh, we, we are members, we live in Lebanon, Indiana, which is, uh, if you know anything about the state of Indiana, the Indianapolis is in the center, of course, Lafayette is on state, state uh, Interstate 65, uh, and Lebanon is virtually kind of in the middle of those two, and and we are members of St. Peter's Episcopal Church in Lebanon. Uh, the church is located on eight acres of, of property on the eastern edge of the town, and in 2010, we began using a small portion of our property, approximately uh, about 800 square feet, to grow some vegetables for the congregation, you know, trying to provide food, you know, uh, healthy uh, food options for, for those people that need it, including ourselves. Uh, and each year we expanded that growing area. But in 2013, uh, we had two things that happened. One was it was a drought uh, in our area and we found virtually no pollinators. And so as a result of that, we had a very poor harvest that year. So I, I went to work and uh, discussed this, gr- the whole growing and lack of pollinator issues with a work colleague, and he suggested becoming a beekeeper. Well, I'm an engineer, and the only thing I knew about bees at the time was they were a bug, they stung, you know, I, you know, I was allergic. I mean, all these things, I said, I can't do that. That's, uh, that's crazy. And he said, look, just there are local organizations, just find one. And I think you'd be surprised. They could be really hooked. So while we were hesitant at first, we found a local beekeeping club in our area, and we attended our first meeting in the spring of 2014. Uh, I've got to say it was it was kind of it was very interesting because first the folks were very friendly. Uh, they were more than willing to help uh, answer any questions or even offer if we didn't want to jump into beekeeping right away, we could come and help them look at their hives and work their hives and learn about bees, and we found it really refreshing and. Quite honestly, we were hooked from the first meeting. It's like, wow, if nothing else, just the people were so informative and so interesting that I, I just wanted to learn more. So so we uh, we spent the next nine months reading, attending meetings and participating in two separate bee schools that were sponsored by the Beekeepers of Indiana for new beekeepers. Um, and our initial plan <laughs> was to maintain just a few hives for pollination while we learned about bees. And... That we went like that for about three months. So we were getting things, gathering things, information, and really doing study about what, what would be the next step. Unfortunately, however, I, I shouldn't say unfortunately because it's been very fortunate. Uh, our plan changed though pretty significantly during a, a special church event that we had at St. Peter's in the fall of 2014. Uh, we uh, the uh, the bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Indianapolis was at St. Peter's for an event. And once learning of our desire to become beekeepers, it kind of turned us on our head, strongly encouraging us to not only become beekeepers, but to teach beekeeping to other churches and organizations as a part of a new care of creation ministry for St. Peter's. And while that was not originally in our plan, it did become clear over the next few weeks that this would be a good, a true, a good area for us to get into because it was a true need. Um, 
I wasn't sure exactly what I'd created when I when I got all this information, but I thought, well, let's go with it. So we began initially by participating in educational talks at the local beat clubs and, and meetings and uh, and outside organizations. And at the same time, we established our two first two hives in 2015. And we created a, an enclosed teaching apiary called what we call a bee corral. Um, we were concerned about uh, having hives just out in the open, especially on, on church property. And so we, we've built this picket fence type, six foot tall uh, corral, I will say. Uh, that's, it was uh, started out as, as 10 by 10 by 20. Now it's 20 by 20 and soon to be expanded to 40 by 20. Uh, but that allowed us to put hives uh, in there and keep them safe uh, from from people walking up, just happening on them, and vice versa, keep keeping them safe from people. So, or people safe from them. It actually did two things that we didn't anticipate. One is it did just it did provide that that benefit, but it also provided the opportunity for us to show uh, people uh, bees and beehives without actually suiting them up. What we found as we worked with the with the corral and the and the bees, that bees will when they come out of a beehive, they will fly and they will they need to clear the the lowest obstacle, right? And so that obstacle being a six foot fence. So they would fly up to the six. They would fly up above the fence and they would fly out to forage. Well, six foot. I'm not quite. I'm a little about five five. So it's well over my head. So what we saw was the bees were not. We're not flying into us; they were flying up and over us and into the hives. Saying all that, what we found very quickly was that allowed us to go out without suits on and a lot of protective gear, and we could just watch the hives literally from the front, which is typically not where you want to stand. Normally, you don't normally want to stand in front of a beehive without some kind of protection. But it allows us to actually go out there and show people what honeybees are like, um, and and how they work and how they fly and do things. And we've had, you know, several folks come uh, up to 30, 40 people uh, on a tour, go through and not have to suit up completely. Now, can, can folks get sun? Sure, it can happen. But we've not had that issue. And we've been very cautious about when we go out, We everyone needs to have protection, so. Uh, earlier, you had mentioned that that you were a little hesitant because you were allergic to bees. So you knew going into this that you were allergic, right? Well, well, I'll tell you, I'm like a lot of folks. I, I assumed I was allergic because I swelled up. <laughs> so like, well, I swell up, look at my hand. It's like, no, I'm not allergic, actually. Um, I have the same reaction most people have. Uh, you, you swell, it itches for a little while. Uh, we, uh, we found out very quickly that allergic means, you know, anaphylactic shock. That's, that's when you're allergic. You have to, uh, you know, we have EpiPens that we keep on, on site just in case someone does have a reaction, which thankfully we've never had any issues. But we also uh, ask folks if they have, if they have a, uh, any allergies to bee stings yeah. before we go out. Um, it, I'd also like to say that, you know, we've been keeping bees now for the last six years and I've been stung more by yellow jackets you know, which to me have much more of a wallop as far as this thing than I have been by honeybees. And, and that's where a lot of people, I think, get confused. You know, they think that when something stings them, it's obviously, it's, it's a honeybee. Oh, no, not necessarily. It's there yeah. are other things out there that sting too. So, but, <laughs> but yeah, so, so the, um, the, the other thing that, um, that beekeeping has allowed us to do, if I can go on is, uh, 
it's allowed us to really expand what we do in our community. Um, this whole program of beekeeping has has opened up other avenues for us. I mean, we've been able to repurpose a facility uh, or building at our facility at St. Peter's uh, into working kitchen and a classroom. Uh, we now teach a junior master gardener program with on-site dedicated uh, uh, instructors. And we teach adults and youth both how to plant, prepare, and preserve food. Uh, and so uh, the, the garden is, uh, has been a tremendous asset for us. But that's, as a teaching apiary, we really concentrate on just that, on teaching. And uh, to that end, you know, I think with, with not just our, our managed bees, which is what bee, uh, honeybees are, but also our native pollinators in the area, which we've tried to support too. You know, last year, we, we supplied over 2,600 pounds of fresh produce to two local food pantries and a soup kitchen. So, I mean, I think there's, you know, most people say, oh, you keep bees for the honey. Hmm, yeah, not necessarily. You know, we, most people do it for pollination. Um, so when you started this, um, you kind of just went into it because there was the drought and you needed to find another solution to, to boost the no, garden. No so so yes. is the garden bigger now than it was even before that drought year because you've yes. had pollinators? Yes, we we've we're almost three quarters of an acre now. Oh we're wow. Close to three quarters of an acre. Yeah. So we've we've expanded the property quite a bit as far as growing areas. And and in fact, uh we um we have a uh, new partnership with the Black Independent Growers in Indianapolis. Hmm. Uh, they we have four independent growers that come now. We have prepared a half of an acre for them to come and grow uh root vegetables, crops, and herbs that they literally take back to the Indianapolis inner city area and provide to food deserts, food desert areas. Oh, great. So people can, yeah. So, so yeah, so we've, we've expanded a lot and the way we met the black independent growers, they're beekeepers. Yeah. And, and they, they struggle, you know, obviously with everything like we do too. And uh, we've formed a really strong bond with them. And like I said, have four independent teams that come up. We started this last year. It's called Growing Common Ground. It's a new, uh, a new ministry for us, and it's been a tremendous tool. You know, it's given us, uh, it's given us an opportunity to to share how we grow things. It's given them an opportunity, an opportunity for them to share and us to learn how they grow things because. Yeah. Every, every person that grows something grows a little bit differently. And it's, it's really interesting to see how, when you put your, put your heads together, how you can really do some really fantastic things. So, and I think that's where we're at. And, and in fact, we've just, uh, we have just signed uh, our, our memorandum of understanding. They will be, they're, they're already planning for this year. We're already in plans now for the, for ordering seed and crops and things for them for this year. So, so yeah, we're really excited about this whole thing. Great. So, so, um, did you have any specific hobbies before you became a farmer? Because I feel like that was not your intention <laughs> well, to become a farmer. Yeah. <laughs> the, for, for years we were in cart racing. I mean, you know, we were mm. in the cart racing, which is a completely different, uh, different aspect of, of what, you, what your, um, what your hobbies can be, of course. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I think the, the, uh, our, our kids are, are out of the house now. They, they have their own family. So, you know, we wanted maybe a little bit quieter life. I'm not sure where we've gotten there. I think in fact, <laughs> it's, it's probably we're busier now than we've ever been, but, uh, but yeah, no, I, it's, it was kind of just a, a transition. And uh, like I said, you know, we, we've been trying to do the garden since 2010. So we're 11 years into this and, and every year, I mean, uh, we've, we've expanded, uh, 
not just the growing area, but our our programs, I think, uh, to, mm-hmm. to help those in need and, and to really concentrate on what people need. So, yeah. Um, so you, you gave us a little insight on, on one of those common misconceptions is that everybody kind of just assumes they're allergic to bees. So what, what other misconceptions do you hear quite often, especially because you, you run a youth organization. So I feel like there may be, you know, maybe kids don't, don't know all that much and maybe their parents don't either, I suppose. Yeah, well, like I, yeah, I kind of touched on briefly, uh, uh, most, one misconception I think about beekeepers is that uh, the only reason they keep bees is for the honey. And obviously we, you know, we, well, we, yes, we, we have honey. Uh, We mainly have them for pollination services. Uh, The other misconception is about, about honeybees specifically is that they hibernate in the winter. Um, Honeybees are social insects. Okay. Uh, Compared to us, what we call a solitary bee, which would be a a bumblebee or a a native bee, for example, uh, either an orchard or a, um, a mason bee uh, that actually builds a the, the builds a nest or and puts the larva the eggs in in the ground or in a tube. Uh, honeybees literally survive through the winter. Uh, now, saying that the life of a honeybee in the summer is only forty five days, mm-hmm. so it's it's important that uh, that the queen is uh, of the colony is very successful and is very and because she needs to lay between 1500 and 2000 eggs a day in the summer because of this this turnover okay in the hive and most people don't understand I, or don't realize I think if, if they're not beekeepers that um, while the colony is really strong in the summer it does the numbers do go down in the winter uh, but they they do not hibernate they literally cluster around the queen and they keep her at a very balmy 72 degrees roughly up to <laughs> 90 degrees uh, no matter what the temperature is outside uh, we have uh, as the as an engineering geek uh, we have uh, hive monitoring instrumentation in our hives. So that's actually uploaded to the internet and we can watch our hive temperatures all, all year long, every day, every hour, and mm-hmm. not just the, the temperature, but also we have scales underneath each hive. So we know the weight. So we know, we know how much their honey or how much nectar they're bringing in. In fact, during the day, if I'm, if I'm looking close, I can tell when the bees, when the girls all fly off to forage and I know when they come back because there's a three or four pound swing and from, from day oh, to wow. evening. So, yeah, but, but one of the things that, you know, I think that that is, it is a kind of a misconception because most people that aren't into beekeeping just believe that they're like other bees, uh, species of bees that, uh, that just hibernate. So, so do other um, do other species hibernate then? Is that kind yes. of where that misconception yes. comes in? Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, there are, there are over 20,000 species of bees that have been identified around the world. And in North America, there were 4,000 species here. So, you know, there are lots of bees. Now, the, the honeybee is unique from the standpoint, obviously, it's, uh, it's a social bee. They're social, they're social creatures. You know, they, their life depends on uh, the colony working together. Uh, whereas a, a mason bee or the others, uh, even a bumblebee, you know, they're, they're solitary and they, they do great pollination work. Uh, they, and they have their specific things they do, but typically they live in burrows, either, like I said, in tubes or underground that, uh, that are placed there by the, by the Queens. And, uh, and then they will emerge either the next year or maybe uh, 18 months later. So, so yeah, so it's, they're just different. And I think it's important for, beekeepers including myself to understand not just honeybees but other pollinators too including butterflies you know we have 
in in our uh, growing areas, we have tons of uh, uh, thistle and ironweed and things like that, which are really beneficial to butterflies at the same time. So, um, so when you added bees, did you see an increase of a lot of other uh, other insects and and pollinators? Yes, I we did, and I think part of it is we did because we became obviously. If you have honeybees, you tend not to spray pesticides on your plants mm -hmm. and and in your in your grassy areas. You know, mm -hmm. what, what the first thing that comes up for everybody in their yard is what? It's a dandelion, right? I mean, mm -hmm. that's you know, and most people are like, oh, I've got to get rid of those. Well, probably to my neighbor's dismay, we don't spray our yards anymore, and you know, because <laughs> we have dandelions. But I also know that that's the first thing that honeybees go to, and so to that end, I think that us by us not putting a lot of chemicals uh, on not just our lawns, but also the gardens. We're very, very conscientious about what we put on. If we, if we use anything at all, it's, it's natural. Uh, it can be uh, vinegar, cayenne pepper. It can be, you know, something that uh, you can, you can put down uh, to possibly uh, deter a pest or parasite in a, in a plant. Uh, but we, we don't, don't use chemicals hardly at all anymore that that we know will damage pollinators. And I think because of that, we've probably, I believe, and, and I think the results of our growing the last few years, I believe we've helped our native pollinators at the same time, so. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, I introduced you as a master beekeeper. Um, so tell us a little bit about uh, what it takes to earn that certification and, and why it was important to you to earn it. Okay. <clears throat> there are um, master beekeeper is is a, a typically a certification, and there are there are several uh, organizations now that will have certification programs for Matt to become a master beekeeper. Uh, one of the things that I became concerned about as I began to research the beekeeping and topics and materials online was I realized that while there was really good information out there, a lot of it was misleading and somewhat honestly was just incorrect. Um, and so as I continued to find uh, and research programs online, I was really looking for something that uh, was more either club-based or university-based, a true education path, okay? And as I looked online, I found a program through the University of Montana that gave that specific training I was looking for. Um, and so I'll talk about that. Now, there, like I said, there are other really, really good master certification programs uh, out there, but I'll talk about UMs first, and then I'll maybe elaborate on the others too a little bit. Uh, the University of Montana's online beekeeping certification program, it consists of three university-level courses, which are called Apprentice, Journeyman, and Master. And the whole program culminates in a, a certificate designated the participant as a master beekeeper, okay? The courses are held, and the University of Montana courses are held completely online. They're open to anyone uh, in the world, actually, with internet access. The class size is typically limited to approximately 40 students. Uh, depends on, on what the time of year is. And registration is extremely competitive. I mean, most spots are filled usually within the first few hours of when they open registration. Each, Although each course is only eight to 10 weeks in length, the full, pro the full program takes a minimum of three years to complete. For me, it took, well, I started uh, I started in 2015 and I finished this past year, but it takes three years, the minimum to complete, and it's structured to give the participants at least one full year of experience in between the courses. Um, 
the courses have traditionally been non-credit with a, with a certificate of completion. Uh, you do receive 11 continuing education credits, of course, but students have the option of taking that course for academic credit. We did have several students uh, that were studying at the University of Montana take the course also for credit. Um, uh, in either option, the, we, I found these courses are extremely rigorous and required participation in discussion forums, uh, completing, of course, written assignments, quizzes, and exams. Um, I can tell you that, uh, you know, I, I'm an engineer, and I think I studied harder for this than I've studied for anything in my life. <laughs> and, I, and I believe, honestly believe that uh, it's because I wanted to do it so bad. You know, it was yeah. one of those things that you really, it's, it's, it, when you're really, really interested in it, it's, it was just one of those, I just, I just had to learn more. Uh, the course capstone though at University of Montana's completion of a literature or an experimental, experimental based research project, uh, which requires you to deliver a final technical report. Uh, some of actually, which are published in scientific journals and beekeeping magazine. So they know that those 10 weeks will go by so fast and you will be so consumed. And in fact, the last week and a half, they give you no other exams and anything else. They just want you to concentrate on your, on your research project. So um, I, I think it was a wonderful program. And like I said, I started in 2015. Uh, I finished last year. So so it took me a little longer, but I also really concentrated in between those sessions about my beekeeping habits and how I did things. And, and uh, I, I think it was a wonderful program. I would, I would highly suggest it to anyone who's out there looking for a program like that. There are, like I said, though, there are several other well-established master beekeeping certification programs. One, probably the most well-known and probably the oldest is, it's called EAS, Eastern Apiculture Society. It's literally a, uh, the organization on the East Coast that uh, deals with beekeeping and honeybees. And they have their own certification program and it's it's also very rigorous uh, as most are now. They, um, they actually have uh, uh, several exams you have to pass, written exams. You have to, you have oral discussions, oral, you have to present things orally. And then they also have a true hive inspection. You have several, a few days, I think, of hive inspections where you have to go in and actually show the, uh, show the proctor how, what, what is in the hive, if there's any disease in the hive, and they take you through the whole thing. So, so yeah, so it's, uh, there are, that's just one of several, but there are several programs out there right now. And in fact, uh, there's been discussions about having a master's program here in the state of Indiana also. So great. So that the one on the East Coast sounds a little bit like uh, uh, becoming a doctor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's you know they're all people say. So is this a master's? Uh, is this a master's program? Well, it, be clear. It's master certification. Okay. So yeah. This in three fifty will buy me a a really nice coffee drink someplace. You know. But <laughs> but at the same time, I think the the knowledge is invaluable, and I have. I find myself picking up B books and not all textbooks, but a lot of B books just to read more. You know, it's, it's actually spurring me on. Uh, there's, I'm actually thinking about, there's a, they teach a natural beekeeping class, at University of Montana also online. And I'm possibly thinking about taking that one next year. So we'll see, but yeah. I swore I would never do it again, but I, I will probably do something <laughs> else again. So. Well, I think too, uh, something you touched on earlier uh, with the Black Independent Growers Group is that it, it just builds your community. So you have even more resources uh, of, of beekeeping friends, I guess, when you, oh, when you seek advanced uh, knowledge. Yeah. I, yes. And it's like, a, yeah, that's exactly right. I think that, uh, you know, I've, I've made so many friends around the state and uh, have so many friends uh, that have, uh, 
have really reached out because of beekeeping and, and even folks locally, you know, they have no idea that we had bees and it's, you know, it's not something you go out and you publicize and you don't, you know, you don't say, Oh yeah, we're, you know, it's, it's, you just, again, I was, my initial thought was I just want to become a quiet, lowly beekeeper over in the corner of the property and <laughs> not let anybody get upset, you know, and do all that. But, but yeah. So, and, and I, I now have um, the university of Montana program. There have been, um, there have been, I, th- I think we're up to six. Now. I think I was the fifth one in the in the state of Indiana to to pass this course. So oh, wow. it's been pretty selective. Now they've been doing it since I think 2013 or 14, I believe. But it's to me, it's it's kind of a, an honor to to have taken that because it is so unique. Um, and the other thing too, I found really interesting in the in the course was that you know since it's worldwide, uh, I met beekeepers from from uh, Russia from uh, China, from Japan, from uh, Norway, and, and you meet them online and, and those forums allow you to discuss things with them. In fact, they're required. The forums were probably the toughest thing for me uh, because it's that is true social media uh, in, yeah. uh, for a class. And that's the, the instructors make that a, a fairly significant part of the grade because that is how they know you raise your hand. And so as you go through, you learn things. I mean, the, the gentleman from Japan, he had hives on Mount Fuji at two different elevations. Now, you know, I, you know, and it, so it was interesting to see how he dealt with hives in in challenges and issues with beekeeping compared to what we do here. And it's and it's the same across the country. I mean, you know, you get to the northern states, and obviously they have very very cold winters, which impact hives and how they survive. And versus folks in Florida or down south, you know. So, yeah, I I've uh, I, I think it just opens up um, anyone who's looking at beekeeping uh, and who's looking into uh, this kind of hobby. Um, I think it will re- really um, can be very eye-opening to what you can yeah. do out there. So I'd like to imagine that your Japanese counterpart is doing a podcast right now talking about how there's a man in Indiana who's just completely <laughs> yeah. flat. Yeah, yeah, Has exactly. Just on flat ground. Exactly, exactly. So, well, you know, bee equipment can can be heavy. I mean, it's as bees, you know, fill the box. I mean, our hives. I can't. I won't look right now, but we're probably up to three hundred pounds for the whole hive oh, right wow. now on one of them. Yeah, I mean, because we've we've kept quite a bit of honey on this year on a couple of them. So we're probably up to three hundred. There's a couple that are probably one hundred and twenty. But just and you won't you don't move all that equipment at once. But some of that equipment you do need to move in and out. So. I, we're on flat ground and I, I have a cart, you know, and I can, you know, I, I even struggle with that, you know, you're picking things yeah. up, but I can't imagine strapping something to your back and trying to, uh, uh, anyhow. climbing a mountain at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's, that's incredible. Uh, okay. So we've talked a lot about, um, the, you know, the process for educating yourself and, and a little bit uh, about your background. So, so let's switch gears and, and talk about, bees and okay. and talk to the people who who may be uh, interested in getting started and and informing the the retailers who are our primary audience um, who are kind of going to be the that source of education for their customers so um, how easy is it to get started as a beekeeper well actually it's it's pretty easy to get started uh, but as you can kind of tell from from my experience it's like anything else though so if you don't prepare you probably won't be successful or if you are, it's, you know, you, you'll be very lucky. <clears throat> Managing bees can be intimidating, especially for a beginner. Uh, that's why I really encourage anyone who is interested in it to 
to go to a club and or find a mentor because they can always help out with questions and give advice. Uh, that a club and a and or a mentor or both obviously uh, is really invaluable. Uh, new beekeepers also sometimes believe that you know you can just get the bees, put them in a box, and walk away while they go about making honey. Unfortunately, uh, that's not true. It was true 60 years ago, uh, but bees and beekeepers now have continuously has have challenges continuously by their pests, parasites diseases, pesticides, lack of natural forage, which to me is a very large one uh, that just didn't exist 60 years ago. Uh, but, um, but even with all of these, and this is kind of a plug, I guess, for beekeeping, um, there is nothing like watching a colony go through its daily routine. I mean, honeybees are, like I said earlier, are social insects, meaning they, they share the work and assume specific responsibilities for the colony and its survival, and, which includes uh, feeding, foraging, and protection. Uh, when I've had a really tough day at work, I can go there and I, I can be, you know, somewhat distressed, but witnessing that symphony of nature can have a very calming effect. The sounds, the smells, and just the visual sight of, you know, 30 bees, 30,000 bees flying in and out of hives is just a really amazing thing. And especially if you you know you can just we stop by on our way home sometimes and just stand and watch and it's just uh, it's one of those things that's very calming. So, um, as far as components to uh, to get started, I assume you're going to ask me that. <laughs> the, the, yeah. uh, um, the key, obviously, component is a, is a hive. Uh, that's that can come in uh, several several different forms. The basic and most popular hive is called a Langstroth hive. It was designed uh, by a, a beekeeper back in the uh, back in the 60, uh, in sorry in 1852. Uh, Lorenzo Langstroth was a congregational minister in Pennsylvania, and he developed a hive that actually uh, you you could remove frames had a removable frame, so you could pull the frames of honey out and use those. Uh, before that. Beekeepers kept what we call skeps. You see in the old pictures, they have this, looks like a, people say they see it as a beehive. It's just a, like a, a paper skep or a, a mesh skep made out of raw material. And the problem with those is, yes, you could have bees and have honey, but to get the honey out, you had to destroy the colony. So that was determined that obviously that's not, you, you want to keep the colony going for, for the next season. So um, Langstroth came up with this hive and, and it is really, it's interesting that even to this day, it's the number one hive probably around the world is being used. That hive consists of uh, two boxes, we call brood boxes, where the queen lays the eggs uh, in the bottom of the box typically. And then as, as you progress uh, and as the colony progresses, you'll need to add two more, at least one more box and up to two boxes typically uh, that we call uh, supers or honey supers uh, on top of those boxes where they can actually store the honey. Uh, like I said, there's the queen lays between 1,500 and 2,000 eggs a day. So there's a lot of eggs being laid. At the same time, a bee's life being 45 days, it doesn't take, you know, that turnover is, is uh, requires, that's what requires her to lay that many eggs. So um, along with those boxes, you'll need other equipment, a, a bottom board that goes underneath the hive that allows them to uh, to land and come into the hive, an inner cover at the top of the upper box, which allows the beekeeper to remove the hive lid uh, and without 
disturbing or impacting the colony. And then a hive cover, which basically protects the, the hive from external elements, including weather and predators. So that takes care of the, the mechanical, physical things that where the bees live. The next is obviously you'll need some protective gear. Uh, we believe a veil is a minimum. Uh, I, I have beekeeper friends who don't wear don't wear any veil, don't wear gloves, don't you know go out with flip flops and, and shorts on. <laughs> and that's great if you can do it. But I I suit up now. I do wear a uh, I wear a jacket with a veil. I don't wear a full suit anymore. I do wear a jacket with a veil because. In the middle, when it's 90 degrees outside, the last thing you want to do is put on more clothes. So yeah. I, I wear, I wear a jacket and a veil, um, and and I also wear gloves. Some beekeepers uh, don't wear gloves, and in fact, some master certification programs require that you do not wear gloves when you do the hive inspection. Uh, gloves, uh, while for a new beekeeper, are important because just so you can get the feel, you know, what a hive's like taking apart. It also they also tend to make you less. Um, careful, let's say, with bees when you open up the boxes. So by handling either with uh, latex gloves, which we use, or uh, just without any gloves on on at all, you tend not to be so uh, so dramatic with, with moving frames and moving things around because they will let you know pretty quickly when they're not happy. Um, <laughs> so, so gloves, well, I said a veil gloves, uh, a hive tool. Uh, bees are very hygienic. They, they do a, a couple things. Um, one is they create a substance called propolis. It's they actually, when they forage, they will forage and scrape wax off of leaves of plants. And they combine that with two enzymes and they bring that back to the hive and they turn that into the stickiest glue you'll ever find. I mean, it, it's amazing how this stuff sticks. And, and they use that to seal the entire hive inside all the way around the frames, the box, the cracks in the any boxes between boxes, they seal it all up. So if you want to, or if you, you if you're going to manage a hive, you need to have a tool. We call them hive tools. It's basically it's a pry bar, okay, to pry those things apart. Um, and then the bees, after you leave, after beekeeper leaves, then they spend the next week fixing all that. But uh, like I said, they're very hygienic, so they, that's their uh, that's their insurance for uh, to to keep out uh, viruses and and other pests and parasites. So, um, so that's, that's the other item, the hive tool. And then probably the, the final mechanical thing you need is a smoker, uh, to get into a hive, you want to apply a, a cool smoke. Uh, you don't want to flame the bees. You don't want to burn them, of course, but we, we use, um, you can use pine needles. You can use a lot of natural materials. You can use burlap that's not been uh, coated with anything. Make sure it's natural burlap. You can use that. I've used a lot of burlap. I've used pine needles. There are also other uh, supplies that beekeepers have that they can get that are commercial. Uh, they look like pellets for a smoker, but obviously they don't have any, they have no, they have any chemicals to them at all, but you can apply that. But you apply the smoke. Uh, the, uh, the belief is the smoke actually reduces the alarm pheromone in the, in the honeybee colony. And it's interesting because when you when you apply smoke to a hive, you can actually hear the pitch of the hive change. The, the sound of the hive actually will change. Uh, it's They are deciding what they're going to do. And they will usually go away from the smoke. So if you're going to work in the top of a hive, you will apply a few light puffs of smoke. Uh, and they will usually bring the take the bees down so you can actually inspect the hive without you know, without being intrusive to them as much. So that covers the mechanical things. Obviously the next thing is bees. Uh, you gotta have bees. Uh, and you can you can get those a few different ways. If you're lucky and if you know a beekeeper, uh, you can actually capture a swarm. Uh, bees that are either 
feral bees or bees that have come from another someone else's hive, if you get them in the spring, first thing is they've they've actually survived a winter, which is key. Uh, that that says that they're they're pretty decent stock. Second thing is they're free. Uh, that's you know that's that's always a good thing. You're looking to <laughs> save costs. Um, Otherwise, you can also purchase bees. Uh, there are um, you can buy a, what they call a box of bees. Uh, there they used to sell. They used to send them through the U.S. Postal Service. Most beekeepers today have their their boxes delivered as a group. Uh, a, a club, for example, will order a hundred boxes of bees, and then they will distribute mm-hmm. to the folks that want them. So it's a little more organized. The old days, they would, and, and they may still do. Some bees still do this, but used to buy them. Online, they would ship them via mail in a, in a wooden box with a cage with like a wire mesh on it. And as soon as the, the postmaster general in your area got that box, he was calling you immediately because he wanted those things out of his post office. <laughs> um, and then the other thing that you can do, too, is you can go to a commercial beekeeper or uh, a bee breeder. There are bee breeders, honey bee breeders, and you can buy what's what we call a nucleus hive where you they either provide you or you provide in advance a box and they actually start a small hive for you and it's usually three frames with bees and a queen and she's already laying eggs so you basically have a mini hive that you can then trans either keep in that box if you have the uh, uh, large enough box or you transfer that to your own equipment so those are kind of the three methods uh, that you can use to get bees that they're that most folks use one of the things that we talk about also is and, and they uh, we were told this when we started, and I was a little surprised, but we did it, and I'm glad we did. Uh, I think it's beneficial if you, when you start, if you don't just have a single hive, uh, if if cost is uh, is a is a major issue, and you can only go with hive one hive, then that's fine. Go with one hive. Um, it's we suggest though that where possible, you go actually with two colonies or two hives, uh, while that. You know, that it does obviously increase the cost. It allows a, mood, a new beekeeper to determine possible issue with a colony very quickly. Uh, we actually witnessed this when we started ours. Uh, we had both hives and the bees were flying in and out, but one seemed to have more activity than the other. So we had uh, some friends who were beekeepers and actually own a uh, beekeeping supply center uh, here locally. Uh, they um, they came and helped us inspect, and we learned that the lower activity hive had actually lost the queen and was in the process of trying to rebuild the colony by rearing a new queen. Oh, and wow. so without having that second hive to compare it against, we would have, hey, bees are flying in and out, you know, everything looks good. Well, yeah, not necessarily, but we we could see the difference. You could see that one was definitely more than the other. So that's why I say it's it's really helpful if possible, if you can have two hives, that's that's really a good thing to do. So you said you said earlier that the life cycle of a bee in the summer is 45 days. So that's the worker bees, right? That's the ones who yep. are going in and out. Right. So what's right. the life cycle of a queen? The queen, when I when we started beekeeping, we would say the queen was would lifespan was one to three years. Okay. Um, unfortunately, with the pests and parasites, now uh, almost all beekeepers are are exchanging queens every year. They okay. they will replace queens every year. And we have found that um, if we get two years, that's that's probably as much as we're going to get. And in fact, we've almost uh, gone to the point where we're exchanging queens every year now too. And sometimes they'll you don't have a choice. They'll do it on their own. I mean, if, uh, if a queen is not producing, the colony, uh, the colony is driven by the colony, not the queen, uh, while she releases the pheromone that allows them to know how she's doing. If she's not doing well, 
they will actually take um, and supersede her. They will replace her. They will grow a new queen or create new queens. And so she be will mutiny. Exactly. A B coup. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, it's kind of like a B coup. And, and that's what's that's what a swarm is all about, right? So when bees mm-hmm. swarm, the queen will leave with normally with about half of the older part of the colony. And and she will emerge before the new queen, or she will she will leave, excuse me, before the new queen emerges. Uh, and uh, and bees, the bee colony is pretty intelligent. They don't just create one new queen. They'll create several new queens. And the queen, as the first one that emerges, will sting the others and will kill them in their cells. Yeah. So saying that too, um, the workers, you know, we talk about stings and things, and that's what a lot of people Mm -hmm. are interested in that. The honeybee, uh, most people, I think most people know that when a honeybee stings you, it dies because Mm -hmm. it has a barbed hook, right? And so as it stings you and then it flies, tries to fly away or pull away, the stinger and the and the venom sac are left with with whoever it is. If that happens, you just need to scrape it with your fingernail, just flip it off. Do not try to pull it out because if you do, you typically you'll grab the venom sac and put more venom in into oh. into your body. So you just want to take your fingernail or something just flat and just scrape it off. Um, so and that's because, like I said, they have a barbed stinger. That's very unusual for a bee. Okay, that's that they're that's uh, you know not uh, not how bees normally do or how they have stings. The, the queen though, on the other hand, she does not have a barb stinger, so she can sting repeatedly. And so she can sting those other queens before they emerge in the cells and not lose her stinger. She's, she's free to do that. Uh, in theory, she can also sting us, but we find that they very seldom sting beekeepers. We handle them Right. We have to, you know, they'll, we'll mark them with some, maybe some paint or something or a dot uh, and they're handled, but they're, they act differently than the rest of the colony. Uh, and uh, they, while they can sting, they typically don't. So. Hmm. You were, you were talking a little bit about um, just some best practices. Um, and I, I think you were about to talk about uh, used equipment. So people who are trying to kind of come into beekeeping on a budget. Yes. Um, but what's what's the cautionary tale with used equipment? Well, we, we try to caution folks who are who have, are looking at used equipment. Uh, if you're familiar with the prior owner and their beekeeping methods, and and they they seem sound, that's that's okay. You know, we we wouldn't deter anybody from doing that. What I would be very concerned about is picking up equipment that you don't know the for, you don't know the person, you don't know uh, their beekeeping habits, and uh, the uh, the issue is there are some diseases and parasites that will stay in in woodenware, wooden hive equipment, mm. and you do not want to start a colony with that. That's just yeah. you know that's just not a good thing. So so we've we've seen folks that have done that that have had significant colony loss due to unresolved, those unresolved parasites or diseases, as well as honeycomb that's been exposed to unknown chemicals uh, that just really creates, it can create a serious problem for a new beekeeper. So yeah, there's a good bit of, of equipment that you need to, to start. So when you're coming in as a new beekeeper, what's kind of the budget that you think people should, should keep? Well, you know, if you look at I, I was looking back uh, this week at some costs. I had some costs from 2018, so they're they're not necessarily obviously there's there's been increase in costs, especially in bees. To be honest, uh, I would I would assume now for a single hive, uh, you're probably looking for everything uh, about 750 
dollars roughly to, you know, you could spend up to $1,200 and that you can actually go and, uh, but purchase packages where they, the, the company would sell you the box, the uh, protective equipment, the smokers, the whole thing. It just comes as a package, uh, less the bees. Uh, I do know that uh, when we started, bees were $130 to $145 range. And I looked this this past week and they're up to almost $190 for a package of bees. Mm. So they're not cheap. An individual queen can run anywhere from $35 to $50, depending on the, the species of bee and, and who the breeder is. So, so it's not... You know, I don't want to let anybody think that it's an insignificant cost, but good is because it's not. And this, this will, uh, this will allow you to have pollinators and keep bees and have some honey. Uh, that does also does not include uh, the cost or any honey processing equipment. You know, you need to obviously you can, you can you've got the honey, but how do you get it out? You know, you need to yeah. extract it. So uh, the the upside to that though is most clubs have extractors and most clubs will allow you to bring your frames in or borrow their extractor to extract your honey uh especially if you're consuming it yourself you know if you're just doing your own honey then that's fine uh if you're processing honey to be sold then that's that's a different different story you need to need to do some more investigation but last this last year we extracted about 120 pounds of honey oh wow and yeah, it seems like a lot, doesn't it? But it's not really. I mean, for, <laughs> for a colony, I mean, we had we had four hives. Uh, we extracted 120 pounds. It it was it was okay. It was a good year. Yeah. We also had some issues in the middle of summer, so I felt really fortunate. They they just take off with it. So I see a lot, especially with local honeys. There's like a flavor, so you could have like clover honey or you know all these other like plants. How do you? I guess how does that happen? Well, you, you have to be careful with some of the labels. Uh, if if it says local raw honey, it's whatever the plant was there. And, you know, is our honey clover honey? I believe so, because we have some clover, but it could also be some buckwheat. What, what you can tell by the, the look and smell of honey is um, the, the type of honey. When I say you can, I shouldn't say you can tell. The plant will determine the plant and the nectar will determine uh, what type of honey is going to be made and the pollen. So by, by, if you have a field full of clover, you're probably going to have clover honey. All right. Mm-hmm. But if you have, but bees can fly two and a half to three miles in radius if they need to, to forage. So they could be at our neighbor's apple tree, for example, they could be at our persimmon trees, which they pollinate. They could be at all the things. So to specify, yeah, this is clover honey. You, to put that on the label, I like to make sure that I know, yep, that's really clover honey. Um, yeah. And now, and that's not to be confused with flavored honey. Some folks put in, uh, I mean, we've had jalapeno honey, you know, we've had yeah. all kinds of cinnamon honey. Well, that's added. Obviously we don't, uh, bees aren't bringing those back, but, <laughs> but, um, and, and whipped, and they're all different forms of honey. Also, you know, you have just pure raw honey, you have comb honey, which is literally where the beekeeper takes the comb and cuts out a section and provides that with the wax comb. That's called comb honey. A chunk honey is the same thing, only it's put in a jar with honey around it. And then there's creamed honey, which is actually a process uh, where you actually, it's it's a more of a whipped process, let's say. Of And with that, a lot of times they actually include uh, some flavorings or things besides the honey. So yeah, it's... Um, Honey is is really dependent upon the plants, and like I said, unless you know, unless you have acres of a specific plant, I I believe it's hard to tell exactly yeah. what's in the honey. But we, yeah. the other thing too is we do not 
we do not filter our honey. We strain it. Uh, but it's when we say it's unfiltered, we do not heat our honey and we do not filter it. So we say raw honey, it's it's literally raw honey from from the you know from a bee. It's not uh, it's not been processed as far as being you know pollen removed, things like that. Because quite honestly, now uh, a lot of folks are are wanting uh, uh, fresh local honey because they because of allergies. It's 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 somewhat uh, somewhat still you know in question about how much of an impact it has. But most people think that obviously it's it's like anything else. It's a better better prevention than not. So, yeah, it's like introducing possible allergens early. Yeah, right. Let's say on the high side, twelve hundred dollars to get started, and then mm-hmm. once you have a thriving uh, beehive, what's the maintenance cost? Well, the maintenance costs are typically you know every every few years you need to paint your boxes. Uh, you paint only the outside of the boxes. The bees will take care of the inside. And, and uh, so you need no paint or any, any protection on the inside. They will protect it themselves. So paint costs, obviously. Uh, beekeepers are looking for uh, inexpensive paint, things that they are coating. It doesn't have to be paint, just something that some protection. Typically light is better. Some, you'll have some beekeepers who paint uh, really nice patterns and different, uh, different, colors and darker colors sometimes um, the darker colors obviously are good for the winter but but the summer is what we're most concerned about so ours are, are light cream or white uh, usually we, we do some some variation on that um, the wax foundation like i said that the, the foundation most beekeepers provide uh, either a natural beeswax foundation which is just a really thin sheet of wax and then the the honeybees themselves will literally draw that out they use they use their own beeswax and they will draw that out to create the hexagon cells uh, for for brood or honey or pollen or nectar. Uh, that is one option, the, the wax foundation. And then there is also a plastic, what we call plastic foundation, which is man-made plastic starter, but it's been coated with beeswax. So it gives them a start. It gives them a place to start where they will draw that out also. Uh, natural beeswax foundation should, re- should be replaced every three to four years uh, just to avoid uh, collecting any trace elements or chemicals from the plants that they the foragers visit uh, for pollen and nectar. It'll also darken some too, especially the the brood areas. Uh, it'll become dark because they're walking on it and doing you know and having brood in it. Uh, so, but typically the about every three to four years we'll we'll replace our foundation, and then that and that costs us uh, anywhere from. 80 to hundred dollars per hive whenever we do that. Uh, and it's a rotational basis. We don't do every hive every year, of course, and we keep mm-hmm. some on stock all the time. Um, and then the, the, probably the, the most concerning thing for us is pest and parasite control. Uh, there are, there are a lot of pests and parasites that the honeybee has. The key right now is called a varroa destructor or the varroa mite. Uh, it's a mite that attaches itself to a bee in the pupil stage of its metamorphosis. Uh, and it, while it doesn't necessarily kill the bee, it can, but it typically doesn't. It acts as a vector for viruses, and it can decimate a strong hive in a matter of weeks. So, and in, in fact, I, I've seen that firsthand. It's it's really disheartening to have a really strong hive. It's produced a lot of honey, and then all of a sudden you see it crashing right before the winter. It's like, oh, what's happening? And it was just it was a mite load, is what it was. Uh, so every hive is susceptible to varroa. Uh, some. And every new beekeeper needs to understand that it, I, every every bee, even feral bees, the the native or wild bees are are exposed to these also. So it's not just managed honeybee colonies. Um, so what that does is it requires a, a beekeeper to monitor and intervene uh, to keep the colonies alive through the year. 
especially in the summer. The, uh, the cost of this uh, intervention varies by the methods used. Uh, most beekeepers use uh, some sort of chemical compound to reduce the impact on these mites. Obviously, you have to have something that's, that's going to um, impact the mite, but not the bee. You know, you're trying to literally trying to kill a bug on a bug. So it's, it's, you have to be very selective with what you use. They're, they're looking at more and more natural compounds, um, some, of the, some different things that we can use that's, you know, like I said, all natural. Uh, that's where I think we're still a ways off from that, looking at different methods. But the common product that we use, I'm, I'm just going to estimate it costs probably $40 uh, per hive annually. So, so you know, the, the initial investment may be a pretty good chunk of change for most people, but once you're set up and your hive is functioning, it's really a, a pretty inexpensive maintenance hobby. Yeah, that, yeah, it, it is. I, you know, I think it is now, you know, you can, it, I think what happens is once you get into it, uh, the, the beekeepers that I've, I deal with the most, they started out with a few hives. The next thing you know, they have 20. <laughs> it's like, yeah. you know, we're, we're kind of the, probably the odd man out on this because, I, I don't want more than 10 hives. You know, I, you know, we have other things we do. And, and again, I go back to the whole teaching aspect of it. You know, I don't need, I, I need to uh, be teaching and not necessarily working hives because, because it is time consuming and, and it's not, um, I don't want it to anybody to think that, you know, that it, it's not work because it is work. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. and it's working hot part of the day, but it's, it is very rewarding in my opinion too. It, ha it has been for us anyway. So. Um, so you said at the, at the, at the church where you maintain the hives, um, and have a fairly sizable garden, you're at almost three quarters of an acre. So do people need three quarters of an acre to have? No, babies? no, you don't. Um, one of the, one of the, uh, probably the, one of the best known beekeepers on the East coast is, um, a gentleman who keeps hives literally on top of skyscrapers. Uh, he's an urban, the true urban beekeeper. Uh, and he's actually written a book called uh, Honey and Venom. That's Andrew Coat. And he's, he's really, it really shows that, you know, you can really keep bees anywhere. Now saying all that, obviously we're, you know, we're here in the Midwest, uh, not too worried about too many skyscrapers, but the, but you don't have to have three quarters of an acre. Uh, what I'm more concerned about is what is the area like? What's a forage area like? You know, if you you if you had a half an acre, but you live next to a forest, hey, <laughs> go for it. You know, I mean, you could put them up against the woods and and they will take care of it. the The biggest challenge, though, is to me is the and first consideration is how close you are to your neighbors and any distractive, busy activity. You know, uh, bees are stinging insects, and high traffic areas can present you know, real problems, not only to neighbors, but to authorities. And you obviously you want to avoid that at all costs. Uh, certain municipalities in Indiana uh, will, may limit the number of placement of hives on any given property. So it's important to understand the laws in your area. So like anything else, you know, before you go off and do it, just check. Um, there is, there was a new state law last year, I believe that, and I can, and it's actually on the beekeeper. If you have any questions, that's a good place to check because we keep all the regulations there for the state and, and other areas. Um, but you can go there and see. But it is it's lawful to keep bees uh, as long as they do not become a pest or a threat. That's the thing. Uh, we've uh, There were some municipalities in years past that have tried to ban bees and chickens at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's been, um, that's been somewhat overturned. Uh, 
So you can you can have bees. Again, they do uh, advise you though that you should do it uh, with with forethought and making sure that you're not impacting your neighbors and um, and anyone else in the area. So who decides when a bee becomes a pest? <laughs> well, well, your neighbors will start, you know, and I, I think, I think it's important for every beekeeper to understand. I mean, we've all, we've all lived next to folks that, you know, that can be challenging, let's say as neighbors. And, and we've run into this a little bit, but as a beekeeper, you need to go in understanding that, look, the, most people don't know or understand much about bees. And uh, it's important for you to educate them on bees. And it's also important for you to be a good neighbor. So all five or six of our neighbors of the church, they all get honey. I mean, yeah. quite honestly, they all have trees. They all have things that the, those bees are pollinating. And so the things we stress to the clubs, if you know there's an issue in, in your area, we need to we need to jump on it quickly so it doesn't become a major issue. Uh, obviously, that's something that, uh, it's, it's, again, it's like anything. It's like any other animal or agriculture product, uh, whether you have chickens or goats or, or cattle. You know, you just need to understand uh, some of the limitations. And and bees are, uh, you know, they they have their own thing. They can, they don't have to live in that box. So, um, uh, I think we've got time for one more question. So, I think, uh, kind of related to what size yard, um, the next the next logical question is, okay, well, what kind of plants do I need in my yard um, to to keep the bees happy? Well, I think uh, that's a really good question. Bees. A bee sees in the ultraviolet spectrum. So uh, red, for example, is black. All right, uh, but they anything that's uh, uh, violets or or blues or such, and the plant needs to be for a honeybee specifically. The plant needs to have a very shallow entrance. Okay, if you have something like a really long lily, a, a bee's uh, tongue that it uses, or what's, what's called a proboscis, that it uses to actually collect the nectar, it's not all that long compared to other insects. And so for it to get in to gather nectar, uh, it's very difficult if the plant's not, not really, really uh, short. So shorter plants, uh, colorful plants, uh, if you had a uh, ultraviolet light, you would see that there are actually nectar guides on plants that direct the bees and other pollinators to where to go. Here's the source. And that's it's been done for, you know, millions of years. That's uh, pollinators and, and plants that need to be pollinated have worked, have been symbiotic for years and years. So, um, but yeah, like I said, red is, is um, they'll, they'll go to a red plant, but it's not typical. In fact, they'll go to, they'll go to sweet corn. They'll, that's not something they pollinate, but they will pick up pollen from sweet corn. Interesting enough. I, I was surprised by that myself. So. Well, this has been uh, a, a great uh, hour of, of information and I really appreciate your time. Um, it's, it's definitely something uh, that I think is valuable for, uh, to, you know, to educate people of, of how important bees are um, for, you know, the, the ecosystems we have uh, everywhere. Um, so I really appreciate that you are, are willing to kind of give that information to, to our listeners um, who hopefully will engage with their local uh, beekeeper group. So I wanted to give kind of a quick shout out. If you're in Indiana and you want to talk to Chuck more, you can uh, find his info um, with the beekeepers of Indiana at indianabeekeeper.com. 
Uh, and then if you are not in Indiana, um, Chuck mentioned the, the national organization is the American Beekeeping Federation. Um, and so you can find your local group at abfnet.org. And uh, hopefully we get a, a big uh, a big connection between local beekeeping groups and and uh, independent home improvement retailers. Because uh, I think, you know, there's a lot of, you talked a lot about uh, building community and and it's just kind of a neighborly uh, hobby to get into. And that's, that's kind of the core of what our uh, retailers are interested in doing is supporting the community. So, well, thanks again, Chuck. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you.